Well, next Sunday, dear friends, next Sunday, God willing, I shall be over at Balkan, and David Jones will be preaching here. He'll be taking both the 9.30 and the 11.15 services. And he'll be going back into the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. We left our study of Hebrews quite a long time ago at chapter 9. So just to help you to get your bearings, I want very rapidly, very rapidly, excuse me, to make a mad dash through the first eight chapters. So fasten your seatbelts because, you know, we're going to be going at 85 miles an hour. Now, the theme of the letter can be summed up in three words. Never give up. Never give up. See, it was written to a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, who were under tremendous pressure to abandon their Christian faith, to go back to Judaism. If they had done that, they would have had the benefit of the protection of the Roman authorities because Judaism was a recognized religion. Christianity at that stage certainly wasn't. So by remaining faithful to Christ, they were risking the loss of livelihood, home, and even life itself. So all the way through the letter, the message is, don't give up. Don't throw away your confidence. Remember the promises God has made. He intends to keep them. So let's have a look at chapter 1. If uh, you've got a Bible there, you'll find it between pages 119, sorry, 1199 and 1202. The essence of chapter 1 is the superiority and the nature and the finality of the revelation of Jesus. God has spoken to us in the past in many, many ways, but now he's spoken to us through his son, and his son is the final revelation of what he has to say. Now, you'll see in chapter 1, in verses, uh, verses 6 and 7, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, verses 8 and 9, just have a look at them. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now, that's a quotation from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And when the Jehovah's Witnesses come calling next, take them to Hebrews chapter 1, or rather, take them to Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Take them to Psalm 45 and ask them who the psalmist is talking about. And they will, of course, say, Jehovah, God. And that's who, whom he is talking about. And then take them to Hebrews chapter 1 and point out that exactly the same words are applied to Jesus himself. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever. Now, it won't win them over, but it will give them a little nudge to show them that their understanding of the nature of Jesus is completely a 
adrift of the New Testament. I remember speaking to a Jehovah's Witness, or rather someone who'd been a Jehovah's Witness, and he said to me, why don't Christians take us to the scriptures? Why don't they point out these clear indications that Jehovah's Witness teaching is wrong? Chapter 2 starts with a, a warning. If Jesus is God's final revelation of himself, it's really stupidity beyond all measure to ignore him. And then in chapter 3, the writer takes his readers back to an event which happened way back in the story of God's people, way back in the history of God's people. Are there incidents that kind of come back and back and back to your, to your mind? I dare say there are. So often it happens. And um, we are constantly reminded of them. Well, one of the incidents that always resonated in the minds of the Jewish people was something that happened during the wilderness wanderings. They were... Um, they'd come out of Egypt, they'd been released from slavery, but they were hungry and thirsty. And they said to Moses, why have you brought us to this dreadful place? Why have you brought us here? We had all sorts of wonderful things in Egypt. And here, in this dreadful, God-forsaken wilderness, we're going to die of starvation and thirst. And Moses said, no, no you're not, because God is going to care for you. But somehow the people couldn't understand this, and they grumbled and moaned. And God was told, sorry, Moses was told by God to take the people to a certain rock and speak to the rock. And when he did this, water would gush out. But Unfortunately, Moses had lost his patience with the people, and instead of speaking to the rock, he, he, he struck it with his staff, and in doing so, he dishonored God. And the incident lived in the people's memory as a kind of awful point when, when they got everything wrong, when they rebelled against God, when, when they lifted themselves up and, 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 and defied God. And the psalmist in, verse, in, in, in Psalm 95 refers to that incident. And, and in verses 7 and following, um, we see a quotation from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. Do you remember what happened? Where your fathers tested me and tried me? Where they grumbled and moaned when they rebelled against me? For 40 years, they saw what I did. Then I was angry with this generation, and I said, their hearts are astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. What a dreadful, dreadful place to be when God says, I've lost patience with you. Can he ever say that? Well, don't let's risk it. Don't let's harden our hearts. Let's open our hearts so that he can see us, uh, bring us the message that chapter 4 has because there's a wonderful uh, message in chapter 4. It's all about the, re the, the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. 
I was ordained a, a long time ago, nearly uh, 40 years this year. But I remember the sermon that was preached to me. I remember it partly because of the man who preached it to me, a much-loved minister who'd been with me since I was a child. But I remember it also because it was a, a, a model of sermon construction. The text is 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. Very simple verse. As for you, Paul is talking to Timothy, as for you, always be steady, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill every duty of your ministry. Four simple points. And you know the hardest one to remember? <laughs> and perhaps the most important one is... Always be steady. Always be steady. Don't panic. But we do panic, don't we? So often, when God seems to have lost the plot, when we can't understand what's going on. So often, we have to remember that God has provided a rest for his people. And we have to enter into that rest. A little while after I was ordained, I was asked to go and speak at a weekend uh, when there were young people who were um, thinking about the possibility of being called to the ministry. Now, I was young and inexperienced myself, and I wasn't really sure that the material that I had prepared would hold their interest. And on the way down to this particular weekend, something had gone wrong with my car. I'd only just been given by the goodness of the church which I served, a second-hand car. It was my first and most prized possession. Wonderful. My car. I wrote it off in the end. Anyway, um, on this particular weekend, Something had gone seriously wrong. And I'd, I'd, I'd managed to arrive at the weekend, but there was no guarantee at all that I would be able to go home, that it would get me home. So I wasn't feeling very um, at ease. And I can remember sitting on the bed in my room and turning to these verses. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his and the Holy Spirit very clearly said to me, Stop fretting and be at peace. Enter the rest I have provided for you. Just speak from your heart and leave everything else to me. And you know, dear friends, it was a wonderful experience to do just that, to leave everything to God. Well, over the weekend, a young man came to me and uh, spoke to me about um, the possibility that God was calling him into the ministry. And I can remember sitting down and talking to him. I can't remember what he, I said to him, but he is now a URC minister, not very far away from, from where we are now. Now, whether anything I said influenced him for the ministry, I have no idea at all. But I do remember that wonderful sense of peace 
that possessed me when I was able to give myself totally into God's hands. Because you see, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and actions of the heart. You know, this book is spiritual nitroglycerin. It really is. We have to be careful with this book, careful how we use it. But if we use it and apply it to our own and other people's lives, as I'm seeking to do now, it can have an effect beyond our wildest dreams. This book has changed people's lives and sustained people's lives. One of the reasons why I love the book of Hebrews is because I need to hear that message. Never give up again and again and again and again. Keep on going. Keep on going. Never give up. I've got a a poster on my study wall. I think I've told you about it before. It's a picture of, of a heron. And the heron has in its beak the head of a frog. And the frog has its grabbers, whatever frogs have, tight around the heron's crop. So the frog can't get away, and the heron can't swallow the frog. And underneath are those wonderful three words, never give up. That is the message of the book of Hebrews. Chapters 5 and 6 are strong stuff. They introduce us to a mysterious figure in the Old Testament called Melchizedek. Now, who on earth is Melchizedek? Well, he's a strange figure because he seems to be greater than Abraham. He was introduced, he's introduced in the story of Abraham, and Abraham actually pays Melchizedek tithes, which means must mean that he's of senior authority than, than Abraham. And we're not told about his antecedents. We're not told about his ancestry. In fact, he seems to have no human origin, whatever. So who is Melchizedek? Well, don't worry about him. Melchizedek is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus was pre-existent, he had no human origin. His divine nature had no human origin. His human nature, of course, had Mary as his human origin. But his divine nature had no human origin at all. It was always there. It was eternal. Melchizedek is a kind of foreshadowing of Jesus. And we are told that Jesus is even greater than Melchizedek. Yes. Partly, of course, because he's human. Verse 7 of chapter 5, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by uh, by by God to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then going on in chapter 6, 
we find some really difficult words. Imagine this group of hard-pressed Christians. They're facing an ultimate choice. They risk everything, livelihood, home, family, even life itself, by remaining loyal to Christ. Now, the only way to save themselves from this terrible possibility of persecution and maybe death itself would be to turn their backs on Christ, to reject him publicly, publicly to disavow the gospel. Now, supposing someone did that, Supposing one of their number turned their backs on the rest of the fellowship and rejected Jesus publicly. Would that person be acceptable back into the fellowship a second time? Would they? Well, verses 4 to 6 of chapter 6 seem to say no, certainly not. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, some people worry about those verses because they seem to say that there is a point beyond which we can sin ourselves outside the range of God's love. And I've known Christians, in fact, I've been there myself, when things that have happened in my life, things that I've been responsible for, have made me so ashamed that I've wondered whether God has rejected me entirely, whether he has completely cast me aside, lost patience with me completely. Now, I want to assure you, dear friends, of this one thing. It's so important. If these verses worry you, to any extent whatsoever, if they concern you, if you begin to wonder, do they apply to me? Have I, because of perhaps a breakdown of relationships in the past, perhaps because of something that I've done or something that I've said, have I sinned myself outside the range of God's grace? If these words worry you, you can be absolutely sure that they do not apply to you. Because if they did apply to you, you wouldn't care less about them. Your very anxiety is proof of the fact that they do not apply. In uh, Romans chapter 5, we, we have uh, the wonderful news that we are justified by faith and we have peace with God. And in the beginning of chapter 6, Paul says, well, if we're justified by faith and we have peace with God, does that mean we can live as we like? Does that mean for the rest of our lives we can sin as much as we like? the beginning of chapter 6, he says, what then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Shall we say, it's wonderful to be forgiven. The grace of God is incredible. 
always available to us. That's absolutely wonderful. So why don't we have a jolly good sin and then we can have a jolly good forgiveness? Some people have actually said that. It's a heresy called antinomianism. And that's not what these verses are saying. They're saying that if you're worried about being cast aside by by the impatience, as it were, of God, they're saying that those verses don't apply to you. But that's no excuse for abusing the grace of God. For saying, well, all right, I can be forgiven again and again and again, so it doesn't matter how I live. You heard just a little while ago about um, Bible, on the be- uh, Bible by the beach. Wouldn't be much fun, Bible on the beach at Eastbourne. Um, I don't like sitting on pebbles. Anyway, um, we were just reminded about Bible by the Beach, and one of the one of the speakers, there were tr- some tremendous speakers, was was quoting that verse of um, the first verse of Romans chapter six. Um, and Paul says, "Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound?" And in the New International Version, the next words are, "By no means." And actually, that's that's a very mild translation of the Greek. The Greek is meganoita which really means, God forbid! And J.B. Phillips translates it, what a ghastly thought. What a ghastly thought. Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? What a ghastly thought. Nobody could ever, ever suggest that. So you see, we've got to keep a balance, haven't we? Between knowing that you cannot fall from grace and knowing that you mustn't abuse that security. And then, uh, and and we're almost there, uh, because it it, it comes to the end of chapter 6, we have these rather strange and wonderful verses. Verse 16. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said, and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And those verses sometimes well, quite frequently, really, arise in daily light, which is a a collection of scripture verses that my wife and I use in our quiet time together. We have a little prayer time together each morning. And whenever they come up, my wife looks at me with a sort of look of utter confusion and perplexity, and she says, two unchangeable things. What on earth are the two unchangeable things? these verses talking about? Well, you see, in ancient times, when somebody made a promise, in other words, made a contract, made a covenant, they didn't write it down. They did two things. They did, first of all, they made the promise. They made the covenant. And then they sealed it with an oath. It was belt and braces, if you like. They said something was going to happen, and then they sealed it with an oath. 
And if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, you'll find a very strange and peculiar ritual described. God says to, well, first of all, Abraham says to God, he was called Abraham in those days, he says to God, look, you have said that my descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore, but I haven't got any children. So how the dickens are my descendants going to be as numerous as that? I haven't even got one. And, and he says, Eliezer of Damascus, my steward, he's going to be my heir. And that was a terrible, terrible thing for Abraham because in those days, immortality was, was counted in your descendants. And if you had no descendants, you would have no immortality. Your name would be forgotten from the earth. It would be as if you had never lived. And Abraham says to God, this promise that you've made is all very well, but it's not working out. And God says, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and your very great reward. And then he asks Abraham to do something which we would find really, find really quite revolting. But it was the custom in those days. It was one of the ways in which they demonstrated that they were going to keep their words. He told Abraham to take a number of birds and animals and kill them and cut them in half and put the halves opposite one another. And then he put Abraham to sleep. And in his dream, Abraham found himself walking in between the animals beside a burning um, brazier, which was a symbol of the presence of God. And the meaning of the whole thing was this. When a covenant was made, when a promise was made, very often they used this ritual so that the two people who had made the covenant would walk up and down in between the halves, symbolically saying, if I break my word, may I be as these animals are. Now, of course, to us, that's a dreadful and horrible picture. <laughs> but you see the force of it, don't you? That's the incident that these verses go back to. So, God has made his covenant, he's made his promise, now he's got to swear his oath. So who's he going to swear by? Well, as it says here, men swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms, puts an end to all argument, seals the promise. Who can God swear by? He can't swear by anyone greater, because there isn't anyone greater. So he swears by himself. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, God swore by himself so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. These people were under sentence of death for being Christians. They had to be reminded, God is going to keep his promise. Don't worry, he's not going to break his word. Remember what he said to Abraham. And so we come to chapter eight, verses, uh, chapter 7 and 8. And they introduce chapter 9, which is where you'll be next week. Because they talk about the new covenant. The way in which Jesus is 
uh, a better high priest than the, um, the Jewish high priests, in which Jesus brings the new covenant. The old covenant was based on law. You must or you must not. The new covenant is based on a willing obedience. You may. Under the new covenant, you don't love God because you have to. You love him because it would be unthinkable to do anything else. So, there we are. I hope you're not too much out of breath. Um, after that mad dash through the first eight chapters of Hebrews, I wish we could go into them in more detail, verse by verse, because there's so much wonderful teaching, but we must leave it there. My only regret is that I won't be here next week to revel with you in chapter 9.